2008, our message this evening is exaltation and humiliation. Where this came from was there is a teacher famous in Israel's history. His name is Hillel. And he lived uh, just prior to the time of Jesus. And he formed uh, a school of teaching uh, along with a contemporary named Shammah. And these two men, Hillel and Shammah, are what the Israelites called Zugits. And that means two teachers. They taught that teachers came in pairs of two and usually of opposing points of view. The idea was that two men who had slightly different points of view, both called to teach Israel, would give Israel a more complete or holistic picture of what God's Word said. Most of the time we don't see things like this in our culture. And the reason that we don't is we're so fiercely individualistic that we would have a hard time listening to two teachers that had differing points of view. We simply want to declare one right and the other wrong. Well, the Hebrew mind has no such problem with contradiction. It can see Dre is right and John is right, even though they're describing something slightly different. It is not always a linear progression of thought and a sum total answer. Having said that, Hillel has become somebody that I admire. And I hear many of Jesus' teachings are echoing or furthering things that Hillel said. For instance, before Jesus ever spoke the golden rule, Hillel said it in a different way. He said, do not do to anyone else what you would not want done to you. Very similar to what Jesus said. Do unto others as you would have done unto you. One was a negative statement. The other was a positive statement. But you can see these are like two men speaking about the same subject. Well, on that note, one of my favorite quotes of Hillel, maybe my favorite quote, is he said, my humiliation is my exaltation. Then the next paragraph starts, and my exaltation is my humiliation. And at first it sounds like a paradox, but what he's saying is, it's in the times that he's been most humiliated that God was able to exalt him and use him. And in the times that he felt the most exalted, that ultimately he was humiliated of his behavior. And I found profound wisdom in this. In fact, in many ways, his teachings prepared Israel, the remnant in Israel that received the teachings of Yeshua, he, he prepared them because so many of his teachings were godly like that that this was not a brand new concept. Well, with that in mind, turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is written 704 years before Jesus. He is prophesying. People call him the Messianic prophet, and that's because Isaiah has 66 chapters in it, and 39 of them deal loosely with the Older Covenant. 27 deal loosely with the Newer Covenant. But maybe more than any other prophet, Isaiah prophesied about Messiah and the Messianic Age. I love Isaiah, and in the second chapter, we find these words. Provided I can get to the second chapter. Y'all tell me when you're there. It's a small crowd tonight, but hurts my feelings when you don't talk to me. Isaiah, the second chapter, starting in the twelfth verse, says, The Lord Almighty has a day in store <laughs> for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. For all the cedars of Lebanon, tall and lofty, and all the oaks of Bashan, for all the towering mountains and all of the high hills, for every lofty tower and every fortified wall, for every trading ship and every stately vessel, the arrogance of man will be brought low, 
in the pride of men, humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and the idols will totally disappear. I want to present to you tonight an idea that you've heard before, but it's worth thinking about again. Not very often in our life do we have stone idols in our houses, although my neighbor does. <laughs> she's from India, and she's got idols in her house. Those are very obvious idols. Something that you can see that looks like a rat with multiple heads, or looks like a woman with multiple arms. You say, wow, what an idol. But the less obvious idols that people have in their life are their own arrogance, their own pride. And when I say that, it's easy to picture somebody with their hair slicked back in a beautiful suit and an expensive gold chain and a nice car. Somebody obviously dripping with pride. And yet, if we dig a little deeper and look a little closer, any time Jesus has made clear to us His will, and we chose a different route, this is the arrogance of man. That man would presume that he knew better for his own life what should be done than what God's Word says. Under this kind of definition, wouldn't you agree that most all of us fall under a prideful definition? How many times in your life have you known the good that should be done and simply walked away from it because it was easier to do something else? There is a day coming when the Lord and the Lord alone will stand. What this means and what Isaiah is pointing to is that God will strip away from the nations and strip away from the people their self-rule, their own ideas. And all that will be left are those who perfectly submit to His will. This is what is called the Messianic Age. The way that Paul says it is everything in heaven and on earth will be brought under one head, even Christ. How many people in our country say, Lord, Lord, but do not do what He says? How many of us in this room say, Lord, Lord, and do not do what He says. There's a day when every proud and lofty thing will be brought low. In Proverbs, turn to Proverbs. We only have a little bit of time tonight because it's a school night. So get there as fast as you can. You'll be in the 30th chapter of Proverbs. In the 30th chapter and the 32nd verse, tell me when you are there. The right side of the room is there. The left side, CJ, did you not bring a Bible tonight? Look on with somebody, brother. You would not go to a physics class without your physics book. Proverbs 30, the 32nd verse. If you have played the fool, does that remind you of a 60s song? Hmm. Only fools fall in love, something like that. If you have played the fool, if you didn't read what was next, if you did not even look at what was next, but somebody said, if you have played the fool, is that a description that you want of you? Played the fool. There's a part we have open in the play. You can be Prince Valiant, or you can play the part of the fool. How many of us want to be known as the fool? Probably not very many. Listen how this proverb says this. If you have played the fool and exalted yourself, or if you have planned evil, clap your hand over your mouth. <laughs> I used to tell my kids, one more word and daddy is going to whip you. Truthfully, somebody pointed out to me the other day, the word I more often use is beat. <laughs> one more word and your daddy is going to beat you. It's funny. 
they will take their hand, make a fist, and shove it into their mouth to keep from making another word. Because they know that something's coming if they do. Oh, that we would live our lives with such reverence for God's will. So often, we think that we know what is best. This goes all the way back to the garden. The one thing God said, don't do, man has done. And we've repeated over and over and over that we've invented doctrines for ourselves like the permissive will of God. I stood in Tiger Stadium and heard a man speaking that said, if he had known then what he knows now about God's will, he would have played professional football rather than become a pastor and then pastored. I wanted to throw up. You talk about playing the fool. How many times were fools by doing what you thought was best? And let me ask you something when you look back on it in your life. When you look back at the moments that you came to a Y in the road and rather than taking the path less traveled by, you took the one that was easiest to travel. Has it not resulted in humiliation? If not before the worldwide audience, Certainly, the kind of humiliation that makes it hard to tilt your head back in prayer and look upon God with a smile on your face. You know what it's like to walk into a room full of Spirit-filled believers and be ashamed? I know exactly what it's like. Do you know what it's like to have somebody prophesying on the left side of the room and you're hoping to God that they don't know what you did yesterday? Yeah, I know what that's like. I also know what it's like to have the scarlet letter removed. And I know what it's like to walk in assurance of His righteousness in me, not because of my own actions, but because of what He's done for me. And I've determined, no longer do I want to play the fool. This woman that I talked to today, I went in and I told you during worship for the haircut, right? How many of you know it doesn't take long to cut this thing, you know? My head's big, so they, they want to give me estimates and I'll come back, but... She had a supernatural experience some years ago and has been scared to tell people because she thought that they would think she was a fool or crazy. I said, sweetheart, most people probably already think you're crazy. Why don't we instead just be true to what God's called us to? With tears in her eyes, she said, you really think He could have called me? I said, don't you believe there's more to life than just being a beautician? She starts to shake her head, yes. There's nothing wrong with being a beautician, but how much better would it be to be a beautician that also works for the King of Kings? And I saw something in her eyes. She realized she was missing out on something in life. A divine sense of purpose. The most humiliating thing is to look back on ten years and see that they were wasted. One of the hardest things to do as a pastor or a parent is to be able to see the direction of somebody's life and know they're missing God's best for them. To go speak to him repeatedly and can bring about no change. I want to confess, the whole church has been beaten with a stick several times that was just meant for two or three people in here. Because I don't know any other way to do it. After going personally to talk to you, after years of, dude, you got to do something different, I can bring about no change and I have slipped into a habit of preaching an entire message, maybe even at a men's meeting recently, that really only applies to one or two people. But you know how that happens? It happens when you don't want anybody to be played for a fool. You don't want people to look back on their lives with regret. We don't think about this very often as arrogance, but I want you to understand it starts with arrogance. It starts with saying, I know that's true, but I'm going to do something else anyway. How many scriptures do we do that with? Do you believe God will provide for you? Who in here does not believe God will provide for them? Okay, well, we've got 100% buy-in. 
Anybody worried this week about provision in their life? We do it all of the time. At some point, we need to do more than confess with our mouth. We need to believe in our hearts. And the way you know that you believe something in your heart is when it shows up in your actions. Turn with me then to Matthew 23. Thank God He got into the New Testament, right? (laughs) In Matthew 23... We're going to see a divine principle at work. You remember the joke my wife told me not to tell? It wasn't really a joke. It was more or less a statement. She's not in here, so I'm going to remind you and tell you again, and hopefully she won't listen to the tape. If you walked in here as a Caucasian devoid of both rhythm and emotion, pray for some. Pray for some. You should not be able to sit in a seat and hear the living Word of God and be unmoved. You really shouldn't. God didn't call any of you to be Spock. Okay? He didn't. You're not supposed to be a creature that is sitting there simply in logic. God made you to embrace Him in all of your senses. He made you to embrace Him with your spirit, with your soul, and your body. And as long as you are trying to embrace Him only between the ears, you're missing out on at least two-thirds of God. And worse than that, You impress yourself with your own knowledge and woefully disappoint Him with your actions. We don't want it. What we want are people that are holy, and I mean that as in holistically, holy, His. And that will result in H-O-L-E, holy people. So in Matthew 23, you ready? Thank you. Thank you, Steve. All right. In uh, Matthew 23, starting in the fifth verse, everything they do, is for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi, which means master. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you only have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant. The greatest among you will be what? A servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. How many mothers want for their children? When, they're, when their children are being born and they pray over their children and they tell people what their children are going to be, how many mothers say, I hope to God that my child, this beautiful baby, my child, becomes a servant. Have you ever even heard that said? No, we hear doctors, we hear lawyers, we hear all kind of things. And yet the thing that Jesus said makes us the greatest in His kingdom is that we would be servants. There's a divine principle at work here. When you work on His behalf, lowering yourself, He will raise you. When you work to raise yourself in men's eyes, He will lower you. Now, if the Word of God is true, the same Word that says you can be saved, then this Word is also true. Ought we not examine our goals for our children? And if you want different goals for your children, shouldn't you examine your goals for your own life? What dictates our behavior? Is it the need for approval from other people? 
Do we do things only so that others will view us in a certain way? Are we scared to death to do something because someone might view us in a certain way? At what point does He really become Lord in our lives and He's the only one we care about pleasing? Isaiah said, Inasmuch as these people praise Me with their lips, their hearts are far from Me. He was speaking to a nation of people that were far more zealous for God than our nation. I wonder what He would have said to us. Now in this church, I am very proud of most people's actions. I really am. And the heart of what we're getting at is I want to encourage you to keep doing exactly what you're doing. Because when you can meet in a storefront or a living room or a parking lot and God can heal people like He did Michelle of cancer or people in Mexico like He did with Ernesto, like He's done with all of those people and it does not change who you are, you simply trust Him more, then what you're showing Him is you can be trusted with more of His kingdom and more of His power. I'm curious. Do you think that God would heal somebody's legs in here at the expense of somebody else's soul? What is more important? To enter into hell with both legs? Or to enter into the kingdom of God without them? Jesus already discoursed on that. But let me ask you this. How many people, the further they have been raised in the spotlight have simply fallen that much bigger. The same woman that looked at me with tears in her eyes, and today we had a divine encounter. The first question she asked me about Baton Rouge, Louisiana, was, did I know such and such? A preacher there who didn't do so well for a few years in his life. First question. It's very, very important that we understand that if we love exaltation, God will have to bring us down. But if we love to work behind the scenes, if we love to do things that only God can get credit for, He will move us up. Keep your finger in the New Testament and turn to Proverbs. I was trying to do something that was secret for a brother in this church, but there's sometimes no way to do something that was secret. What's hilarious is I I thought, you know, this is not nearly enough help Brother smiled and said, somebody else in the church already secretly helped me. Those are my proudest moments as pastors. In the medical arena where I come from, they put people's names on buildings when they give money to a worthy cause. When they solicit funds for their things, they promise the people recognition. I'm telling you, Those kind of actions have received all of their reward right now. I one time sat in a church where a man was speaking about humbly working behind the scenes and another man was passing out pictures of himself doing kind deeds. The irony struck me as amazing. It was not six months later the man was exposed for what he really was. He wanted to be seen as holy and inwardly he was a dog. There's a day when all such motives will be judged. The Proverbs actually say that God judges the motives behind a man's thought. Saints, we better get real with ourselves when we look into the mirror of God's words and examine our actions clearly, huh? Look at this proverb. In Proverb 25, listen, those pages turned. 
By the way, I saw Brandon turning pages, and I want to tell you something that I'm proud of. In the last six months, Brandon has absorbed more of the gospel and can recite more of what he has learned and has seriously studied more than many Christians that I have known in ten years. One of the things that's neatest about that is there's probably not anybody in the world that has got a plaque waiting for Brandon because he did it, or a special parking place, or some kind of award. He's doing it because he wants the favor of the king. Now, I want that to do something for you guys. I want it to spur you on. There are some things it's okay to compete in in the body of Christ. You can try to outlove each other. You can try to outlearn each other. You can try to outserve each other. That's what spurring one another on is. And you should be a little bit jealous. One of the brothers in our church came to me and said, Look, I need to repent. I saw that young man and he's spitting out answers to every question you ask and I realized I've been saved a long time. I want to come to those Bible studies. And the brother did. He's doing something different because of it. This is a holy thing. It's a good thing. Something's wrong if you can look at 60 other members of a church all joining in, doing something from the oldest to the youngest and go hide in your house. Something's wrong. You know, this ought not be. You need to examine why would you be there. Listen to what the sixth verse says. Do not exalt yourself in the king's presence and do not claim a place among great men. It is better for him to say to you, come up here, than for him to humiliate you before a nobleman. Does that remind anybody of another scripture anywhere? Mm, scared to speak, huh? Everything that Jesus says, everything Jesus does, every bit of it can be found in the 39 books of the Older Testament. So when you find in Luke 14 a similar statement, you can turn back to the New Testament, what you're hearing is an expansion, an explanation of what that proverb says. And in the book of Luke, 14th chapter, 7th verse, he says, when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come in and say, give this man your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all of your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is over and over and over in the New Testament. So what you see often is a false application of it. We see a humility that says, oh, I can't do anything. I can't even walk through this door before you. No after you, no after you, no after you, and nobody even walks through the door. This is not the humility that he's speaking of. He's saying don't presume more importance than God has given you. And if what you do is simply say, I'm a servant only here to do your will, you will find yourself doing amazing tasks. Now, in Luke 18, you can turn a few pages, there's a familiar parable. I've taught on this many times. I called it the Pope and the Pimp. 
If you didn't remember a title like The Pope and the Pimp, I don't know what else I can do for you. In Luke 18, you find uh, this principle. He says, To some in the ninth verse, who were confident of their own righteousness, and who looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Do you hear his self-justification in his prayer? Is he trying to convince God or trying to convince himself, you think? Maybe a little of both. And if he says it long enough and he prays it long enough and nobody slaps him in the face with the word and says he's playing a fool, he might actually believe it. And if he believes it and he's sincerely deluded long enough, he might get others to believe they could be justified by the same thing. They could even go start their own first self-righteous denomination. And they could all lead each other right into a big ditch. Listen to the way this other man approaches God. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. When a teacher says something five, six times, could you guarantee it's going to be on the test? Yeah, I think you probably could. The sad thing is the kind of arrogance that chooses what we want to do rather than what God wants us to do is blinding. See, the problem with the Pharisee is that he doesn't see himself accurately. What he sees about himself is that he's okay because he has his own system of doing things. The other man didn't live well but at least saw himself accurately so there's a chance for him to change. One of the hardest things for any human being to do is to actually sit down and reflect a little bit on their own life with some level of sobriety. How many people sit around and tell stories that they are not the hero of? It's an amazing thing. I've watched athletics for a long time, but sitting in a pub... Oh, pastors don't sit in pubs. This pastor occasionally sits in a pub. Sitting in a locker room at a place you work out, Everybody is the hero of their own stories. And I wonder if this man was such a mastodon on the football field. I mean, near demagogue status, why do I not know his name? It's hard for people to look upon their own lives with some sense of sobriety. But you know what? The Word of God is meant exactly to do that. But if you look into it week after week after week and it produces no change, what can we hope will come of that? We really can't. James tells us to be doers of the Word, not hearers only. When's the last time you walked out of a message and said, tomorrow, or better yet, today, I am going to do something differently? See, because this is what I preach almost every week. Almost every week I am telling you something about performing out there what we've practiced in here. When is the last time you personally thought to yourself, wrote down, and actually went and did something different than the day before. If you're racing through your mind and many messages have gone by, you're missing something. 
said, but Eric, I thought you were happy with this. I thought we were being prepared and we were in God's hand and we were ready to reap a harvest. You need to understand something. The more you're given, the more that is required of you. How many of you have been in the kingdom more than a year? More than two? More than ten? More than twenty? Say, how about that? What do you think is required of you? Those of you that had your hands up at the twenty-year mark, do you think more or less is required of you than Brandon? More. Don't you let him outpace you. Mm-hmm. Don't you do it. You should be setting the example for him, not him for you. See, God will choose things that others think are lowly and He will exalt them because His power can be clearly seen in them. How many of you think that it's Brandon's superior intellectual abilities, his God-given talent and charisma, his noble birth status, and his pedigree that have caused him to find favor with God? Yeah, Nick thought so. And yet, his whole life is transformed. And nobody can doubt it. You give Dre a year and we'll see the same thing, I promise. Baby's been in the kingdom about a month and can't be kept away even if she has to walk and it might rain. Most of you got cars. Can you be kept away? She walked. First time she came here, we had to bring her bike inside because she didn't want somebody to steal it sitting outside. That's somebody who wants to be in church. I preached a meeting in Opelousas, Louisiana, where a man rode his bike 22 miles to be there. You know what? I bet he got what he needed from God that night. You mark my words. The churches will eventually deliver video messages to people in their beds. I promise it will happen. And you'll have the opportunity to tithe on a credit card in return. It'll be... I can absolutely assure you it will happen. And one day, if the mark of the beast is financial in the way people say, there will be a scanner on the bottom of a tithe plate where you can slide your mark right under it. Because organized Christianity could care less how you live. They just want to fill seats for the appearance of success and don't care about lives changing. Well, in this church, I would rather have five, five that are really righteous than 500 who simply play the part. This is why you get very little window dressing in here. But you know what? God will take five righteous and chase thousands upon thousands. He'll take what is humble and He will exalt it. And He has borne in my heart. It's been confirmed through our elders. It's been confirmed through the other pastors. It is coming. The question is, where will you be when it does? Hmm. How about that? We're going to skip Philippians 2 because in Philippians 2 you see a perfect progression in Jesus' life. The further that He steps down, taking the appearance of a man, not considering equality with God something to be grasped, submitting to death, even death on a cross, God therefore exalts Him, gives Him a name that is above every name, that is the name of He should bow, and that He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. The further He steps down, the higher God raises Him. He is our example. This is why Philippians 2 says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. We'll skip Isaiah 52. This speaks of Him beaten beyond the appearance of any man, so God uses Him to sprinkle the nations and gives Him the obedience of the nations because I'm sure that you're all so familiar with those that it's being imitated in your life daily. We'll skip Exodus 33 that says, Young Joshua 
stayed behind in the tents of Moses long after everybody else left. You don't know who Joshua is or what he does for more than 40 years so that he's able, when the book of Joshua in the fourth chapter has him coming into the promised land, to handle it when God says, I'm going to begin to exalt you and all of their eyes today. I want you to understand humiliation must come before exaltation and there's a reason. This is the point we're getting to tonight. It's not that I think that you're arrogant. It's not that I think most of you have chosen your will over God's. There's a few of you that have done that, but not most of you. That's not why we're preaching this. The reason we're preaching this is as I was reading the book of Acts, I read something about Peter. And I thought, what an amazing thing about Peter. I said, what qualified Peter for this? And I realized that the most humbling experiences a human being could have, he experienced. So I want to walk you through some of those. Turn with me to Mark. Good, good. This would be Mark 8. I got 15 minutes with you. You give me the best 15 minutes you're capable of giving? In this, we'll switch. No longer should you be feeling, oh my God, is my will the same as God's will? No longer should you be worried talking about me. I'm talking about all of you. If you have to ask if I'm talking about you, I'm talking about you more than everybody else. Now I want you to consider something. experience in their life. I bet I've had as many as you have. In Mark 8, I want you to consider this happening. Okay? Imagine that you were standing with the King of Kings. 8.31 He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and who be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and then who must be killed after three days and rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Would you say that's arrogant? What's arrogant about it? What's arrogant about rebuking Jesus? You're presuming to know better than the King of kings and Lord of lords. Was he malintentioned? He hears that his friend is going to be rejected and killed. And he doesn't want it to happen. Uh, Would any of you feel any different? Probably not. Probably not. It's not malintended, but listen to what is told him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. I want you to get this. He turns and looks at all Peter's peers, but then rebukes Peter. You thought I was harsh. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Before we go any further, I want you to have this in a personal setting. Imagine that we're all sitting here, right? And Adam is talking with me. And I turned and I said, Gabe, get behind me, Satan. Do you feel for Gabe a little bit? Does your skin crawl for him? Do you have a hard time even looking his direction? You ever watch one of those movies? That actor Steve Carroll does this to me constantly. I am so embarrassed for him, I cannot hardly look at the screen. This is one of those moments in Peter's life. Peter has said something that they are probably all thinking that shows that there is a prideful problem, not pride in the sense of the Italian mobster pride, pride in the sense that he's presuming to know better than God. How many of us are guilty of that? And he gets a public, complete, and thorough smackdown. 
He doesn't just get called prideful. He doesn't just get corrected. He gets called Satan. Yeah, like the church lady. Think about that. How do you get out of bed the next day and go face your friends? If this was an American setting, you would simply go to a different church and pretend it never happened. Yeah, happens all the time, doesn't it? The number one reason somebody gives me when they're leaving the church is they want to go somewhere where nobody knows their name. So I bet you do. I bet you do. You want no accountability. Now, praise God, most that have said that have stopped repenting and right back. The best thing that you can do is be somewhere where everybody knows all of your weaknesses intimately. It's humiliating, isn't it? Is it not humiliating? Of course it is. But it paves the way for something. Look at Mark 14. You can just turn a few pages to the right. Mark 14. Talking about humiliating experiences in the life of Peter. Mark 14 starting in... uh, You know what? It's not Mark. It's Matthew 14. Sorry. So you'll turn to the left. Matthew 14 starting in... Good, good, good. 32? No, let's start in... uh, and let's start in 27. Mark, Matthew 14, 27. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come out to you on the water. Is that bold? Jesus walking on the water. Peter says, If it's you, tell me to come out. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. It's pretty cool so far. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. said, Peter, I'm so proud of you for trying. Not what he said, is it? Here recorded in the best-selling book of all time, the book that has been printed more than any other book, the book that's been translated into more languages than any other book, written about Peter, Jesus' words to Peter, you have little faith. How proud are you to be Peter at this moment? If he had a tail, it would be between his legs. Okay? Think about that. One chapter, Satan, now, oh, you have little faith, the doubter. How about that? How about Matthew 15? Look at 15. 15, 13. He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them, they are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, explain this parable to us. Are you still so dull? (laughs) Written in the book of books by the Lord of Lords, somebody said, are you still that stupid, Peter? How would you like that written down about you all times? I don't want to hear anymore that Eric's too harsh. Look at what Jesus said to this man. Calls him Satan, says he has little faith, and says, are you still so stupid? Turn to Matthew 26. Look at the 40th verse. (laughs) He took Peter, this verse 37, He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on this with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples. Who did he return to? All the disciples. And found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. <laughs> All of them are sleeping. 
But who gets the blame? Is that humiliating? Peter can't stay awake with Jesus the last day of his life, even for an hour. Is that humiliating? Of course that's humiliating. In John 20, you don't have to turn there, I'm going to tell you. John writes down, he says, the disciple who Jesus loved outran Peter to the tomb. Written in the book of books for all of time that Peter was not swift of foot, that somebody else outran him. What's the most famous thing that's humiliating that's written about Peter? It's in the 26th chapter. Lord, even if they all fall away, I will never fall away. And what did Jesus say to him? Before the cock crows tomorrow three times, you will have denied me. How humiliating do you think that was? Actually, Jesus looked straight at him the third time the rooster crowed. Everybody knew it. How humiliating do you think that was? Turn with me to Acts 5. The apostles, this is verse 12. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more, men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. All of the apostles are there. Why is Peter's shadow the only one they're trying to get in? I'll give you a hint. It is not because he's the Pope. God had uniquely prepared this man in a way that no other man had been prepared. He had suffered public humiliation for the Gospel over and over and over and saw it as life-giving correction to the point that when something supernaturally profound was done in his life extraordinary in a way that few men on the globe have ever seen, it did not cause him to be full of pride. You know why? He remembered when he was called Satan. He remembered when he had little faith. He remembered when he was still so dull. He remembered when he said, I will never fall away. He remembered when he said, I couldn't stay awake even one hour. He remembered the times he was outpaced by the other disciples. And it kept him in a place of humility while God exalted him. I want you to consider something. The next correction that you're given. I want you to consider the next humbling situation that you're in. Perhaps it is a stepping stone for God to be able to exalt you without ruining you. How many men have not been able to handle the success that God gave them? The nation of Israel did great as long as they were despised by everyone else during the time periods called their golden age, when the other nations flocked to them to see their wisdom, their wealth, God's blessing, it became a snare to them. Christians are really no different. We get our names on signs bigger than the rest of the world for everybody to see, and inevitably, the sign has to be taken down and the people embarrassed. I didn't teach the message to beat you up. I do want you Consider that if you put your will before God's, it's arrogant. It will humble you. But more than anything else, I want you to learn to see 
exaltation. To use you without destroying you. In the first few months that I was saved, the first two years I was saved, I had learned more Scripture than any of my peers. And the man who was pastoring the church I was going to at the time had never even read the book of Isaiah. And I was still not ready. Because in my own eyes, I was somebody. And nobody could tell me any differently. I could quote the Scriptures about humility, and I thought that I believed it. But if God had used me to do something that was great, Eric is who would have become great. And I couldn't be used. I want you to understand that the road to God's kingdom is paved with many trials, toils, and tribulations for a reason. If you understood completely the book of Revelation right now, at this moment, what would you do? You think you might could sell it? Maybe you could compete with the Osteens for the number one seller spot of Christian literature. God's looking for people that do not need, and I'm this absolutely, I'm an admirer of the Osteens and what Lakewood has done. But God needs people who can work behind the scenes that He doesn't share His glory with. The reason that I think the cleaning crew ought to be the most coveted spot in this church is because when it's done right, every person benefits everybody knows. Train for ministry. Silent. Because pastors serve everybody and transition all that God has put in them to those people without credit. If it's done well, you never even know it's happened. This is also what all I want you to do different. I want you to find some way to humble The most obvious way might be that maybe there is a relative or somebody in your life that your pride just does not want you to call or talk to because you remember all of the things that they've done to you. And you remember that they deserve the position that they're in right now. And yet, if you humble yourself, it might be for their benefit. Jesus actually gave His body on a cross for our benefit. Each time the Lord's called me to do that with a relative, each time, eventually, they got saved and healed. And they're either watching right now or are in the room. That's amazing, isn't it? If not a relative, a boss, somebody who's wronged you in some way, find somebody that you can humble yourself with. Somebody for the benefit of the gospel. And you know what? Every step you take down in your own eyes is like taking a step closer to the King of Kings. I'm going to close with one more story. Corey Tim Boone is a woman that I admire. I heard her tell this testimony before she died, and it has never left my ears. When asked by Focus on the Family 
what moment she felt closest to God in her life. She was preaching in Germany after the war. A man steps out of an aisle and begins walking towards her. Having been in a concentration camp herself and most of her family dying in that concentration camp, she was immediately taken back in her thoughts to standing naked and humiliated in a line full of people. And this man was the prison guard who was abusing them. Her sister died in that camp. And before she knew it, as she's flashing back in her mind, she found him standing face to face with her at an altar. And he said, Fraulein, I know that God has forgiven me, but I need to know that you have forgiven me. This is a moment in most people's life where they would know the good that they should do and walk away from it, choosing a path that ultimately is arrogant, although it doesn't feel like it, it feels justified. Most of us would simply walk away or say the man deserves what he gets or let God forgive him, I never will, or something like that. She said deep from within her as her mind was saying, I can't, out of her spirit came the words, I forgive you. She said at that moment she felt closer and more connected with God than at any moment in her life. Since the further down you can step for someone else's benefit, the closer to God you are stepping. Of all the things that I could teach you, whether it's eschatology or Hebraic roots or notes about the Hebraic language or it's Greek cognates or anything that I could teach you, if I could teach you to step down for other people's benefit so that God sees you as stepping up, that would be the only thing that really matters. You can see that we support missionaries that don't have a great grasp on theology, but they step down constantly for other people's benefit. And so in God's eyes, they're heroes. This is our heart. It's the heart of our ministry. And when people come in, the prophecy said, open the doors and God would bring them in or something to that effect. You know what they need more than anything else? For you to care more about what happens to them than what happens to you. You need to humble yourself so that God can exalt you. If we'll do that, He will give us that whole neighborhood, I promise. And then more that we didn't even ask for. Y'all stand your feet. Let's pray.